Hello and welcome to History West Midlands, a regular in-depth examination of various aspects of the black country. In previous programmes we've examined some of the factors, notably the area's rich mineral wealth, that helped make the black country a dynamo of the Industrial Revolution. But all of this rapid change was not without its consequences, and these were not always positive or beneficial. The resultant pollution, for example, that accompanied industry was diversely described by visitors to the area who reported, I quote, a stunted, blasted landscape that looked as if it had been turned inside out. And uh, another quote, of people living in perpetual twilight during the day and by a fairy glow at night. Shades of Elihu Burritt there. Uh, with both the landscape and its inhabitants being described as savage. The problems were clearly in evidence from the earliest days of development, but what were the effects of this industrialization on the landscape of the black country itself and the lives of the people who lived there? And what, if anything, was done to alleviate it? Joining me is uh, Dr Janet Sullivan, an honorary research fellow at the University of Birmingham and picture editor for West Midlands History. Her principal area of research is the history of the black country and primarily the history of Albury. This is a town that's got so much in common with just about any other black country town, but which is distinguished by the particular problems created by its chemical works and others, and so offers us a useful datum in any investigation into the effects of serious long-term industrial pollution. But uh, let me start off with the black country in general, uh, Janet, and ask what kind of pollution was being experienced in the towns and when did it first become a problem? Well, pollution has always accompanied industrialisation, and for the black country, it began in the north as early as the 13th century. The coal outcrop there and coal mining resulted in open cast mining, slag heaps, holes in the ground. When people were mining, they just dug as far as they could get the coal and then gave up and moved on to the next spot. So even if you look at the early maps, Ogilby's map of 1675, for example, you can see on it drawn pictures of all the piles that were left behind and the little word coal pits. So we'd already got, as early as that, a problem with the landscape being devastated by mining. So we've got the uh, topographical features and the changes arising from the pollution. We also had things like the effects of combustion of the coal, presumably. How did people react to the verdant green landscape suddenly becoming engulfed in a thick black smoke? I don't think they really thought about it at first. People were being drawn to the area from all over to find work. As early as 1620, it was claimed that there were 20,000 smiths around Dudley. These people were coming from areas where work couldn't be found. And people were more interested, really, in making a living for their families. And so it's only in this era that we look back and we think of the devastation of the landscape. And early on, some of the visitors were noting it, giving a description of what had happened... But people themselves weren't that concerned about it. They were concerned with getting a living. Well, we live in more environmentally aware times these days, of course. But in those days, was there any thought given to the consequences of the pollution on, for example, water tables, drinking water, effects of noise on people's health and uh, general well-being, that sort of a tangential consequence? That came in the 19th century. By then, the industrialisation had spread from the north of the black country right the way down to cover the whole area. And the people that were moving into the towns, well, they were small villages to start off with, and they only grew into towns with the enormous population explosion. So if we take Albury, for example, 
if we look at it in the 1800s, you can see a few hundred people maybe living there. Look at it in 1845, 1851, 10,000 people had moved into that little tiny town. And obviously, with that came a lot of different kinds of pollution. Pollution from human waste was one of the things that actually was seeping into the water system. And with it, of course, all the industries that were being pulled in. You've already mentioned chemical industries. They were polluting the water system. Each industry would bring its own brand of pollution, presumably. What sort of different tasks are we talking about to, to add to the mix? Well, for Albury, one of the main industries was Chance's Alkali Works. And they had large mound next to the works, which was called Blue Billy by the people, because it was a mound which was blue in colour and it was leftover residue from when salt cake was made for the glass industry. That mound was enormous. It was 150,000 cubic yards of chemical toxic waste and actually it was right next to the main water source for Albury and for the rest of the black country because this was one of the tributaries of the river Tame. People described the river itself as being bright yellow with the residue which was actually seeping into it and said that it stank. But the people in charge weren't really concerned because they felt there was no evidence of people being ill, so there was nothing wrong with it. And in fact, they thought that it contained antiseptic properties and they thought Albury would actually be worse off without it. In terms of the antiseptic properties, with probably nothing could live in it, they may have well have had a point. But uh, the people who came here with these industries helped perpetuate this in as much that the industries drew them here that polluted the landscape, and the people came to be part of those industries that just added to the problem, presumably. That's correct. If you look at the maps and see how the houses were being built in a haphazard way all over the town, 10,000 people in a village, really, that was only destined to have a small number of people. When it was a village, there were no problems. didn't matter that there was no proper sanitation. didn't matter that there wasn't a water source. But when they got 10,000 people living there, there was still no sanitation. There was still no supply of clean water. And so people were taking the water from the brook, which, as we've just described, was getting polluted. They were also taking it from the canal. And some of the sewerage which was running outside the people's houses actually had its outfall into the canal. So that's where they were taking the water from. I can remember uh, in my early days on canals in the 1960s and a little bit beyond that parts of the canals around Albury were actually white from the chemical works. So uh, it's a problem that persisted until relatively recent times. Well, I'll come back to Albury in a moment, but can we just broaden out a little bit to the rest of the black country with steelworks, coal mines, limestone mines, iron factories, what have you, each bringing their own different brand of pollution. And the problem clearly getting worse and worse by the decade as more people came in. At what point did people start taking note of the problem, let alone do something about it? During the middle years of the 19th century, people were very concerned mainly because of the high death rates that were being experienced in the town. In 1856, around this period, a number of boards of health were being set up in all the different towns. In Albury, for example, there were, in a nine-month period, 329 deaths. 210 of those were of children. 
and 150 of those were children under one year of age. And it was clear to everybody that something needed to be done to start to clean up the town to try and do something about the situation. Pollution of the water sources was the main problem at that time. The smoke that was coming from the factories was also a problem, but it wasn't recognised at that point. People were expected to put up with it, really. It was part of the industry, which gave them a living. And they thought if they saw the chimneys belching out smoke, it meant that it was prosperity, you know, we've got work. So it was actually taken as a good sign? They thought it was a good sign, yep. And the same at home. If they got a fire in the grate, they were doing well. If it was a cold and empty grate, it was unemployment and destitution. So it actually was seen as a good thing. Now, there are all sorts of apocryphal tales of the effects of pollution on the landscape and its people, but I know from personal experience when I was a kid that, depending on how the wind was blowing, our clothes would come in off the washing line stinking of chemicals. And uh, we have all manner of tales of holes appearing in clothes, even acid rain. Can we hang a bit of factual meat on the bones as to uh, the reality of the effects of pollution on the people? Well, it's absolutely true that uh, even the industrialists themselves didn't deny the fact from Chance's works that some of the smoke contained the constituents of acid rain. In fact, when the Board of Health went to speak to them about the smoke, they said this was a big problem for the people in the town, especially when the smoke came in their direction. The shopkeepers, for example, there was a tailor in the town and he said he couldn't hang his goods out because whenever he hung his goods out, all the colour went out of them. So a lot of these tales are actually based, in fact? They are. When the smoke actually came into the town, people really felt the consequences of it. A lot of people said they'd tried to make a garden. It was no good. Everything in it died. And in fact, chances rented some of the farming land because it was impossible to grow any crops on it. The women complained, they hung their washing out in the morning, they brought it in at night, it was full of holes. And chances said, well, they believed it wasn't really that much of a problem. They again said the smoke had antiseptic properties in it. And they said it was only a problem when the weather was damp, when it fell as acid rain. The rest of the time it just went harmlessly away. Moreover, it was contained. It couldn't get further than the palings of the work. What a wonderful naivety that expresses. I remember seeing uh, not so very long ago a document on the effects of air pollution and the solution to it was to make the chimneys taller, which uh, seems a little bit naive, but that seems, in view of what you just said, to have been the thinking of the time. Exactly so. In fact, that's one of the things, even as late as the 1870s, the Board of Health went to some of the industrialists and they said, can you please build your chimneys higher to try and take it away. They believed that the atmosphere would somehow just absorb the problem. The main thing was getting it away from the people, from the buildings, and it floated up in the atmosphere and it would disappear. They had no idea that smoke containing the effluents and everything that would go up into the atmosphere would fall somewhere else and that would be somebody else's problem. We've used throughout this series so far um, the work of uh, Elihu Burrit as our compass yeah. to give us an indication of what conditions were like in the 19th century and this is the basis of his famous quote of black by day, red by night, is it yeah. not? The pollution that was endemic throughout the black country. There were tangential aspects to this as well in so much that the Creation of the pollution by digging mines and uh, subterranean caverns led to problems such as subsidence and other problems with the landscape. Can you enlarge on that a little bit about how that developed in the 19th century? 
subsidence was something which occurred in all the black country towns from the underground mining, and houses could descend four to five feet overnight. There was very large works in Albury, Hunts, which was producing edge tools. And in fact, their whole factory descended. It started on a level with the canal, and then it descended so much that the top windows were on level with the canal, and the rest of it had gone down by about 11 foot. And in fact, there are pictures of it when they were drawing all the cracks and crevices that had been caused by it. Enormous amount of destruction actually occurred to the buildings, the works, as well as the people's homes. Wensbury had a particular problem with fires that were burning underground. They had a spontaneous combustion from the coal, and they had one fire that was burning for two years, and it actually destroyed all the um, sewage works which were underground, all the pipes and everything like that. As recently as the 70s and the 80s in uh, parts of Gornal, there's a field there that I recall smoke coming through the ground where there was underground seams on fire there in relatively recent years. How endemic was that through the black country with its mining history? More in the north, I think, where the coal seams were nearer the surface. As you get further down the black country, the thick coal seam actually hits a fault which throws it a good way underground. So I think this is more of a problem up in the north where you've got the seams actually nearer to the surface. And again, in many of the towns, suddenly burning holes would open up in the road. And on one occasion, it was reported in the newspaper that a night watchman had fallen in to one of these and got lost. I'd like to think that all those have gone now. Would that be a fair assumption? I believe so. I'm not aware of that happening recently. We've got other kinds of pollution, but not that one. You've referred to uh, high death rates. Can you uh, tell me more about the general medical problems that people would encounter due to all this pollution? And industry in general, I'm thinking perhaps people had higher rates of asthma or hearing problems with noise. What were the medical consequences? Along with the medical consequences caused by industrialisation, of course, they were already putting up with all the normal things which people across the country were enduring epidemic diseases, typhoid, typhus, smallpox, influenza, all these kind of things were there in the town already. In addition to that, they had a lot of problems from asthma, bronchitis, congestion, inflammation of the lungs. These were all causes of death which were actually recorded in the reports. Now, the uh, plethora of uh, industries that came to this area must have brought with it an equally wide variety of uh, medical conditions associated with them. Can you give us a few examples of the sort of things that people suffered? The consequences were vast, really, especially for the poorer people who actually lived next to the works and couldn't get themselves out of the situation that they were in. In the mines, of course, you've got silicosis, and the same was for the edge tool works. That was quite difficult for the people. It was a, a really difficult illness and death because the dust which they were breathing in had minute particles of metal in it. There were specific industrial diseases. For instance, in Albury, we had big phosphorus works, and one of the problems there was fossy jaw. That was necrosis which actually rotted away the jaw and brought great pain as its figment. And without the removal of the jawbone, it brought death with it. The 
effects of it were being played down, but a newspaper reporter actually came and he sat opposite the works and he started to talk to the men themselves and to get their stories. And many of the men were talking about it and they said, well, we think as soon as their teeth start dropping out, they ought to move from those works, no matter how much they're being paid, which gave an indication that actually the problem was probably earlier than was being said. They also asked him about working in the copper works and he said it was an awful place in which to work. He'd worked there and he said the work turned you green, turned your teeth blue, your hair grey and played old Harry with your blood if the copper got into your system. Gracious me. And the sad thing is that instances of, for example, the, the inhalation of the dust and the metal particles could have been substantially reduced by nothing more complex than a simple face mask. That was true. There were people that were flagging that up. But, of course, it was really difficult to do anything about it. It really needed government legislation to be able to improve things for the workers. And when was the first evidence that that was introduced? We now have the Health and Safety at Work Act 74, of course, as the, the guiding light, but there must have been early instances where people tried to make an effort through the legislative procedures. They did try to make an effort. Chances actually worked with the government agencies. If you look at some of the parliamentary reports, you actually see chances mentioned, and they were working on their chimneys to try and somehow make the furnace consume its own smoke so that the smoke wouldn't go out. So they were actually were trying to make a difference. And what period was that? And that was um, in about the 1860s. As early as that? Yeah, as early as that. But the legislation developed over time and improved over time, so that at first it was reactionary. They saw what was happening and tried to put something in place. But then later on they brought in training, they brought in regulations, and by the end of the 19th century, things were improving a lot. Did all this transition from agriculture to industrialisation manifest itself in the range of injuries people would suffer? Yes. I mean, you've got two things, really, as far as industry is concerned. You've got the work-related illnesses, which were specific to the works, and you've got the injuries. Some of them were injuries which occurred right the way across the board. So you would have falls back injuries from lifting things in and out of boats, for example. Many of them contact with heavy machinery. And different industries had specific accidents which were related to them. Such as? So, for example, if we look at the um, chemical industries in Chance's report, from 1881 to 1890, they recorded 86 accidents and of those, a number of them were due to the chemicals. So you've got injuries from splashes of acid, caustic soda, or splinters of pyrites, which actually went into their eyes. Legs were injured through contact with molten sulphur, stepping into a pan of molten sulphur, for example. Burns, especially to the neck and the face, from caustic liquor and acid. Injuries to the feet from hot ashes falling into their boot or their clogs. I mean, there was just an awful lot that was specific to that area. So it's an obtuse consideration we might not usually give any thought to unless we uh, scratch beneath the surface, but the change from an agricultural to an industrial economy changed the face of people's injuries and their health expectations, as well as the resultant pollution that came with those industries. What were the bosses and proprietors prepared to do about this? There was a lot, really, that the bosses were able to do. More, really, some of the larger 
industrialists and the smaller ones. If we look at the coal mining industry, for example, there were a lot of accidents there which occurred from people experiencing the effects of gas from the falls of coal, from falling out of the skip as it went up and down, taking them in. There's not a lot that they could do about this. They were trying to work on new ways of improving the mines so that it didn't happen. But for the people themselves, the pit owners did take responsibility for some of these things that were happening in a way that if they were injured and they didn't die from them, they would actually supply the family with money the wife and the children would receive something if there had been a death. So they were actually trying to look after the people in the way that they could. I think we've established in previous discussions uh, in this series that there were lots out there that weren't so philanthropic. And nowadays we have health and safety legislation, which is de rigueur and rigorously enforced. Would it be fair to say that in those days the people who were more altruistic or philanthropic towards their workers were guided more by religious convictions uh, rather than legislation. I'm thinking of people like the Cabris who were Quakers, I believe. Would that be a fair assessment that where people were more geared towards the health of their workers, it was based more on religious lines? Yes, I think that's true to say. I mean, the two of the largest industrialists that we had in Albury for the chemical works were Albright and Wilson, who were Quakers, they were in the phosphorus works, and Chance family, who were Anglicans. They did an awful lot for their workforce. I mean, they set things up which were unique for their time. They tried to set up things if the people were ill to provide them with doctors. They set up burial clubs. They tried to think ahead and to involve the men. I think that was the important thing with both organisations like that. They didn't do it unto the men in a way. They got people involved. So if you had the accident committee... That was six foremen, six workmen and just one person from the firm. And they would work together to look at accidents which had occurred, the amount of money that they would give for the men while they were off work. They looked at a lot of ways in which they could help their workforce. I want to bring the uh, conversation back more specifically now to pollution and in your specialist area of Albury. And I've got a lovely quote here from uh, our old friend Elihu Burritt, would you believe, uh, 1868, when he said, On a visit to Bromford Works, they may be regarded as a representative establishment for the district, and I've visited them one day with peculiar interest. When in full operation, with their 60 puddling furnaces in action, they present a scene which would have stirred the muse of Homer or Virgil beyond any of their vivid fancies. Similarly, the chemical works of Messrs Chance and various other large concerns revolving around pollution. Specifically with a town like Albury, what would have been their problems over and above the rest of the region, presumably based on the nature of the works they had? Yes, it was mostly to do with the nature of the works. They were really concerned about the fumes that were being put out from the chemical works, the effluent that was going into the water, and the members of the Board of Health actually approached the industrialists to ask if they could please do something about it, which was quite difficult to do. They blamed them for all sorts of things. They said that they had a high level of imbecility in Albury, and they put that down to the smoke that was coming from Chance's works. Chances said, no, it wasn't. Albury should look to the number of gin shops that they got in the town and the amount of intermarriage as a possible cause for the high number of imbeciles they got. Was there a specific number of gin towns or illicit marriages over and above the rest of the area that would have caused them to say that? No, I think the number of gin shops were probably right the way across the black country. They were sort of pointing towards a popular reason 
for people having mental illnesses, yes. Now, with regard to the people who are trying to actively do something about these problems that were getting worse by the year, there were a number of notable families like uh, the Sadlers, for example, and uh, John Sadler himself, 1820 to 1910, was called the Grand Old Man of Oldbury, and uh, Sir Samuel Alexander had similar uh, acclaim. What are the notable figures and families do we know of that were making some positive spin on the situation? There were a number of key families in Albury. Saddlers were one of them. They tended to be the small industrialists. The larger industrialists, like Chances, Albright and Wilson, they were willing to put in the finance to help. If they were asked to do anything, they were the first ones to donate. They didn't actually sit on any of the boards that made a difference. People like the Saddlers, they were the ones sitting on the boards, on the Board of Health, on almost all the boards that you see that were being set up for different things. The same little group of men were sitting on them. They were trying to make a difference. And as far as the Saddlers were concerned, early on they were trying to say, look, let's have a sewage system for the town. This was in the 1850s, 1860s. They were flagging this up and saying, we really need to do this. But it wasn't actually until the 1870s that they managed to do anything about it. And by that time, the first saddler who'd been involved in it had unfortunately died. And his son said in the speech that was given when they opened the sewage works that he wished his father had been there to see it. He'd worked so hard all his life for this. And that was the same for a number of men. And you find the same little key group that actually are the ones trying to make a difference. Looking specifically at Albury, in which you specialise, and the black country in general, I'm going to... Uh put you on the spot here and uh, ask your opinion how it's changed, presumably for the better, I would say, the last 50 years. On a scale of 0 to 10, how does the black country compare with how it used to be in terms of pollution and general well-being? Well, you've got to say that it's improved. If you look at the scene as it was described, the pictures that were taken of it, the lives of the people, the illnesses that they were suffering from, the hard work, the injuries, the short life expectancy that they had, and you look at the situation now, it's not comparable, really. There's a good many industries that have come in, which are obviously much better for the people. The health and safety records are something that is really important. And in that respect, as far as health, I think there is an improvement. But I think what the black country has done, it's retained a lot of its insular feelings for each individual town you can't really look at the black country and say the black country is just you know one unit the black country is made up of small towns and each town thinks they're important so i think it's retained something from that time as well has it plateaued in general or is it still improving do you think no i think it's still improving what an optimistic note to conclude on i'm going to finish with a quote by um, harold parsons in his book a portrait of the black country and he uh, described Albury and the area in general thus, and I quote, but what of it now? There seems much to be done. Albury remains a sprawl of factories in which the chemical industries have a notable role. It is hardly a place in which to linger. 
and less than 30 years after that was written, there's now an entire generation who might find difficulty in recognising much of the black country in those terms. Uh, times certainly do change, and we've heard today how attitudes towards industrialisation and pollution a testament to that. My thanks to Janice Sullivan. And as always, if you wish to uh, obtain both current and back issues of our History West Midlands magazine, watch the accompanying presentation, subscribe to our audio resources, or simply contact us. Then you can do it all by going through the History West Midlands website and following the relevant links. Join me next time for more fascinating insights into the black country. Until then, enjoy your history and thank you for listening. Thank you.